It really is great to be worshiping with all of you this morning. I'm so thankful to have you here. If you're with us for the first time, my name is Pat Malloy. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, I would love to have the opportunity just to connect with you, get to meet you after service. And so if I'm praying with somebody or talking with someone, hang around, you know, just wait a, a few moments. I would love just to be able to get to know you, introduce yourself to me. And, um, and I, I want you to know, like, you're the reason why I do what I do. I, I love you. I love this church. I love just what, what God is, is doing here. And it really is a, an incredible blessing and an unbelievable honor to be able to come up here and stand before you and share from God's Word every single week. Um, often I feel very unqualified uh, and not worthy of this task that God has called me to, um, but I really am awed by, by God's incredible faithfulness and the opportunity to be able to be with you this morning. Um, we are, are going to be winding down. Next Sunday is going to be our last Sunday in our Deconstructing Faith series, and, uh, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this series. I, I pray that it's been uh, helpful. I pray that it's been a blessing to you as well, and, and a large part of this is I, I've really enjoyed this series is partly because I, I'm talking from my own personal experience, my own walk and journey and the questions and the doubts and, and all the things that I, that where, where God has brought me through. Uh, it, it's, it, in some ways, this is kind of emblematic of my own journey of faith that, that I've had. And, and I mentioned last week that I, that I wish I could stand up here and I wish I could tell you that I do have a perfect faith. I wish I could tell you that, that, I, that I trust God completely all the time, that I never question, I never doubt, um, but that would obviously be untrue. My faith journey has been full of starts and stops, full of windy paths, some of them which lead to nowhere. My faith journey has been filled with moments of sincere faith and sincere belief, as well as times of, of being angry with God, of questioning God, of, of, of wondering, all right, is, is there anything to this at all? And, and, and I think for most of us, that's probably where most of us have been. That, that we, we trust God, but then we have those moments where it's just like, ah, I don't know. And, and as I mentioned last week, at the, at the end of last week's message, I, I really hold on to those words that Peter spoke, that when, when many of Jesus' followers left and, and Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and he, and he said, all right, are you, are you going to leave too? And Peter responds in, in John 6, verse 68, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And, and, there, and there's plenty of times, there's, there's many times where I've, I've had those questions, where I, maybe I've, I've been tempted to, to walk away from the faith and say, all right, maybe, maybe there's just not anything to this. Plenty of times I, I've wondered, like, why am I trying so hard to follow after Jesus and feel like I'm failing more often than I'm succeeding? And in the end, my, my heart's cry and my heart's plea has been what Peter said. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where, where else would I go? Because you do have those words of eternal life. I've, I've come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. And, and so I shared at the beginning of, the, of this series that, that in Christian circles, oftentimes the, the word deconstruction can have one of, of two kind of reactions within the church world, either disapproval and condemnation or celebration and support. And, and as, your, as your pastor, I want you to know that I fully celebrate and support the idea of 
spiritual deconstruction, that, that when people challenge and they work through and they try to own their faith for themselves, when, when they deal with some of those difficult questions and those doubts, like that, that's something that the church ought to be able to get behind and, and to bless and to encourage because, because this is the same process that Jesus took people through. When, when they were questioning, when, when they came to him with faith questions, when they came to him wanting to know, all right, why is this happening? What's going on? That's the same path that Jesus took people on. Like, and, and I appreciate that, uh, that about Jesus because Jesus, what he never did, if you read through the four gospels, Jesus never just gave the surface answer. He, he never just like, addressed what, what the question was. He always dug way deeper. He always got to the heart of the matter. He, he always got to, to the deeper root issues of the heart and not just the symptoms themselves. Like you, you'll probably recall when, when Jesus said, you know, uh, or yeah, when he said, you've heard, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that if a man even looks lustfully at a, at, at a woman, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Like he, he wasn't saying, all right, it's okay not just to do the act. Jesus was saying, no, no, I want to address the heart issue. I want, I want to go even deeper that would lead to adultery in the first place. He was never committed to just dealing with the surface issue, but always going after the deeper issues of the heart. And, and I shared with you in week one, excuse me, that, that when I first came to faith, I had a ton of questions. I, I had a lot of things that I just, I didn't get, I didn't understand, and that, that I wanted to get some kind of grasp of. And, and I, often when I asked those questions in the church context, I would ask people, I, I would say, all right, help me to understand this. Help me to know this. One of the things I often was confronted with is this idea of, of institutional groupthink. Groupthink. And, and so, like, let, let me, allow, allow me to share this, this definition from psychology today about what groupthink is. And, and I think this is a, a great definition. It's very wordy, but just follow along with me for a moment. It says, groupthink is a phenomenon that occurs when a group of well-intentioned people make irrational and non-optimal decisions, spurred by the urge to conform or the belief that dissent is impossible. The problematic or premature consensus that is characteristic of groupthink may be fueled by a particular agenda, or it may be due to group members valuing harmony and coherence above critical thought. And I thought that was a fantastic definition because often in, in the church that I came to faith in, and, and quite honestly, in, in many, many churches are around, it's not okay to pose some of those very difficult questions. That it's seen as a, as a form of dissent, an indication of a lack of faith or a challenge to the, to the church's position or the church's power. And, and all too often, I, I think this speaks to the very uh, shallow and weak and insecure faith that either an individual or an institution has, that if somebody dares ask a question, well then, it feels like the whole house of cards is going to fall. And trust me, Jesus can handle the tough questions. Things aren't just going to crumble and fall apart because we're trying to wrestle with, all right, why is this happening? What's going on here? God, what is it you're doing in, in this situation right here? It, it's, it's this kind of mentality that, that incentivizes just kind of pushing your doubts and your questions and your struggles down as far as you can. Just don't acknowledge them at all until it actually ends up rotting you from the inside out. 
Like right, right behind me here, we had, we had a tree that we had to take down last year right by the, right by the driveway. And, and from the look on the outside, it looked great. It, it had leaves and all this, but it was totally rotten and hollow on the inside. And the sad reality is that for too many believers, myself included, we become really good at showing the leaves and making it look all right. When in the, on the inside... We have those nagging doubts and those nagging questions and, and that, that aren't being answered and we just feel like we're just shallow and rotting from the inside out. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, sometimes we can allow ourselves to, to follow into that insti- what I called institutional group think. Like sometimes we can allow our, ourselves to be co-opted by, by the cultural narrative that about what God looks like because maybe we haven't processed this on our own. Maybe we haven't deconstructed our own faith. We, we, haven't, we haven't wrestled and, and dealt with some of these issues and struggles on our own, and so we just kind of go along with what's kind of the norm is, what's been taught, what we've been taught all along. And I would, I would argue that if we're, gonna, if, if we're gonna make this thing called faith real in our lives, we have to ask those things. We have to challenge those assumptions because that's what makes it stronger. I, anybody who's ever lifted weights or anything like that, I mean, like, part of the way you get stronger is by ripping those individual mu- muscle cells and, and everything because they grow back stronger when you do it. And in some ways, that's what deconstruction is too. When we can deconstruct and ask some of those tough questions, our faith actually becomes stronger in the end when we wrestle with it on our own instead of just taking what we've heard, taking what we've known, taking what grandma said, taking what my pastor said, but actually owning it for ourselves. And, and so this morning where I want to begin is I want to introduce you to somebody this morning. If you can put that first picture up on the screen for us, Keely. Um, th- this is a, a model. It's a, it's a rendering of what, what a, a first century Jewish man likely would have looked like. There, there was a documentary that was done a couple years back that, that really was trying to explore this of, of what did Jesus actually look like? Because all too often, like we, we can think of like our, our Renaissance era paintings and everything where Jesus had this, this wavy hair, he had light features, blue eyes, and, and, and we, we've seen this from like European portrayals, but that's actually nothing what Jesus really would have looked like. Like instead, he, he was a, a, a Middle Eastern man born into poverty, a tradesman, working with his hands. And he, and he shared a, a radical view of, of the kingdom of God, one that was other-centered, grace-filled, enemy-praying. In fact, where, where Jesus, as he was being murdered, prayed for forgiveness for those that were actually taking his life. Like, this is our guy. This is our guy. Who likely would have been seen kind of as, as a as a country bumpkin from Nazareth who, who was bent on, on including the most marginalized people into the world into this new family of faith, this, what was called the people of the way is what they were originally called. And, and, and this, is who, this is who Jesus was. But I wanted to introduce you to a couple other, a couple other people this morning. Um, this first guy is, is actually Zeus. Everybody say, good morning, Zeus. I, I'm just kidding. He can't hear you. Like uh, he's 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 not real. Um, I, I'm just I'm just messing with you. But <laughs> but but like Zeus, he he was 
He was the king uh, of the gods in, in Greek mythology. He, he lived on Mount Olympus. He was the god of, of judgment, uh, of thunder. Like he, he remained up on Mount Olympus until he got kind of like angsty with, with some of the humans, and then he would come down, and, and, and oftentimes with not really great results for, for some of the, the humans along the way. And, and he really was the, the god of, of judgment in Greek mythology. Now, the next person I want to introduce you to, this is Plutus. Plutus is the little baby. Pl- yeah, you can say good morning to Plutus. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> and, and Plutus, he, he was the god of, of health and of wealth and prosperity. Now, now Plutus, he's, he's often depicted in, in many different ways, but usually like this, as a baby on his mother's arm. And often, often when, when there's depictions of, of Plutus, he's actually blindfolded. And part of the reason he was, he's depicted as being blindfolded is because he was blinded by Zeus. I won't go into that, that whole story, but Zeus blinded Plutus because he had a propensity to only bless those that he liked with health and with wealth and prosperity. And so Zeus blinded him so that he could not show favoritism, so that he could not only bless the people that he liked, but that he wouldn't show favoritism at all. And then the last one I want to show you this is, this is Constantine, Constantine the Great. He was the, uh, the emperor in the late 200s, early 300s. And, and the, Caesar, the Caesars of Rome, they, they often referred to themselves as the, as the sons of gods, sons of the gods, the divine expression of, of the gods here on earth. And they, they exacted this idea that was called peace via Rome through force. Peace via Rome through force. So like, like, you will live in peace with Rome or we'll kill you. Like, I mean, that, that's essentially kind of what, how, how it was done. And, and Constantine, like, he, he enacted many different military reforms. He kind of moved the, the center of government to a, a city that he named for himself, Constantinople. And now, now Constantine, the, the, as the story goes, Constantine was in the middle of a battle and it was said that he heard the voice of God, the Christian God, who showed him a picture of the cross and said, with this sign, go and conquer. With this sign, go and conquer. Like somebody who would use, use the cross for his own political or personal or military gain. And so we, we have God, the, or excuse me, Zeus, the god of thunder and judgment, angry, angry judgmental. We have Plutus, the god of health and wealth and prosperity and and Constantine, somebody who would have seen himself as a, a son of God, this manipulative God of war, using the cross for his own personal, political, military advantages. And, and, if, and if we ask people, if, if we polled people, if we asked people, maybe friends you have, anybody like that, people who wouldn't normally darken the door of the church, and we ask them to describe who God is, who would they be more likely to associate God with? The Galilean man that, that we showed, the humble man worked with his hands, a tradesman, grace-filled, full of mercy, justice, inclusion, relationship, or would they say it's kind of like one of the other gods that we listed, a god of judgment, health and wealth and prosperity, blessing those who he shows favoritism on. 
the pursuit of money or war, etc. And, and, and the reality is that as, as a culture, I think we, we've kind of really moved so far away from what the true actual portrait of what Jesus really looked like. I'm not even talking just physically, but just the true portrait of who he really was. And all too often, the picture of God really has been co-opted in, into this idea that God is this, this militaristic, money-hungry, bigoted, angry God up in a cloud with some kind of hipster beard waiting to just kind of like smite anybody who gets out of line. But that's not our guy. That's not our, our dude. Not, not the guy that founded the movement that we are a part of today. This movement of, of other-centered, others-centeredness, caring for the poor, and awakening our hearts to a way of love. And so I, I want to where I want to begin this morning is in John chapter three. And it's going to be a longer passage that we're going to read through together. It, it's the first 17 verses in John chapter three. But this is an amazing interaction that Jesus has with one of the Pharisees at, at the time. And and, and I it, it's such a beautiful uh, demonstration of what this whole idea of spiritual deconstruction really is. And so starting in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God was not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, how can someone be born again, born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one who has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And those last two verses, like those are very familiar to most, if not all of us, in the room. Like we, We've probably all heard John 3.16 before, undoubtedly the most famous verse in the Bible. I don't know how many of you remember Roland, the name Roland Stewart at all. In fact, you can put his picture on the screen. This might jog your, your memory uh, of Roland Stewart. Anybody remember this guy? Like, he, he, this was the guy that was in, like, the end zone of football games, and he always had, like, a big John 316 sign. Like, he was a really, 
I want to, I want to say he was a big deal, but he was kind of a, like very recognizable, we'll say, in, in the late 80s and, and into the 90s. In fact, he was, he was so like recognizable that, that the Simpsons actually kind of like referenced, referenced him, and, and even Christopher Walken on SNL also did a representation of him as well. Now, this was before um, he ended up began serving three life sentences in, in prison, but that's a different story for a different day. So if you're curious, go Google that after we're done here. But, but, but I think about that, that verse. I think about John 3.16 often. And one of the things that comes to memory is back when I was a children's pastor, I used to take our kids and we'd go to a summer camp every year. And, and there were always just like these big services and they were packed, packed with kids and stuff. And, and without a doubt, there was always a moment in one of the services that we had where the, the speaker, they, you know, they'd be sharing some, some powerful you know, message and, and they would reference John 3.16 and they would make this invitation for kids that, that if they wanted to, to be saved, that they would come forward and they, they would pray the sinner's prayer. And, and after you'd pray the sinner's prayer, make sure you go back and tell your counselor so, so that a card can be filled out. And we can tally up how many people got saved at camp this week. And then we can go back and, and we can tell the churches that are supporting the camp, hey, you know, this is, this is what was amazing that happened at camp. And, and what's interesting uh, about this no, no doubt there were sincere young people that, that came and gave their lives to Jesus in these camp experiences, without a doubt. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it gets very convoluted when, when we start to view faith as, as kind of a transaction and not a transition. All right, come down, come down to the front. Say these words, pray this prayer, go back to your seat, sign the card, you know, like, and we, we view faith as very transactional when Jesus actually meant it to be very transitional. It kind of loses, like when we, when we make faith a, a, tran, a transaction, it loses the gravity of what actually is being said by Jesus in, the, in this scripture. And, and if we actually go back for just prior to John chapter 3, in John chapter 2, what kind of sets this up is Jesus actually, he, he, Jesus enters Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And as he comes to the temple, he actually sees that, that the, the temple's filled with, with all kinds of animals and, and people exchanging money and buying and selling. And, and in response, like, like any of us probably would have done, he makes a whip out of cords and, and he drives the, the animals, he drives the money changers out of, out of the temple. He said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Like, stop it. That's not what this place was meant for. And that's what happened immediately prior to John 3. That, that's what takes place in John 2. But in John 3, Jesus, he kind of sticks around. He, he's hanging around the temple, and that's where Nicodemus enters the picture. That's when Nicodemus comes and visits him at night. Now, in visiting Jesus at night, there, there could be a couple different explanations. Two, I think, just kind of rise to the top for me. One is that Nicodemus, he was, he was afraid. He didn't want anybody to see him going and interacting with this, this rabbi, this rabble rouser, this guy who, was, who just drove all these people out of the temple. Like he, he didn't want people to see that he was going and having this conversation with Jesus. That, that's one of them. But the other, I think, is just maybe this was the time that was available. 
the work of the day was done, and this is the time that, that Nicodemus could have, and he could go to Jesus and say, hey, help me out here. I got questions. I, I, I don't know what some of this means. And if you think about it, like the Pharisees, they, they were highly educated. Highly educated. They, they were called the, the ruling class, the keepers of the law, scribes, the, the, they were called lawyers. Like They were the religious and cultural elites of the day. And Nicodemus, he, he comes to Jesus at night, and, and he says, you know, like, we know that you're sent from God. Like, there, there's no doubt about that. We know that you've come from God. But somebody said, all right, but where's this all going? Like, what, what's the end game? What, what is it that you're up to? And Jesus replies that, all right, well, you have to be born again. And, and this would actually not have been a very shocking statement for Nicodemus to hear. Like, as, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have, he, like, he would have had the entire Torah memorized. The first five books of the Bible, Nicodemus would have had that entire thing memorized. Like, he knew a thing or two. And this idea of, of being born again, it's actually a, a Jewish idiom that, that they themselves, the Pharisees, would have used. Because if you were a Jew and you were born into a Jewish family, you were born into the kingdom of God. But if you were a Gentile and you came, became convinced of Judaism and you wanted to convert, you would have been said to have been born again. Now that you were, you, you were circumcised and now you were born again into the kingdom of God. Like this, this was the phrasing that they would have used. And in this conversation about being born again, Jesus actually flips the script on Nicodemus. Where he challenges all the things that he's, that he's ever thought, that he, that he believed that this person that needs to be born again, this person that needs to be born anew, Nicodemus, is you. Like, Nicodemus would have been thinking about them. But Jesus said, no, 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 Nicodemus, I'm talking about you. And so the, this, the first thing that's you know, talked about, all right, you know, like, so everybody is, is born of water, and this may seem a bit like Christianese. Again, this is a, a Jewish idiom, essentially, that, that a way of saying you were born from your mother. But, he, but Jesus continues, you must also be born of the Spirit. And, and this is the part that confuses Nicodemus. This, this is the part that, that, that just isn't making sense to him. And, and, and Jesus says, all right, you're one of the teachers of Israel, and even you don't, aren't, aren't grasping this. Even you aren't understanding this fully. Like in the same way that, that if a Gentile wants to come into the Jewish faith, they are born again, so too you must be born again. Jesus, Jesus was saying, all right, Nicodemus, you are in need of, of deconstruction. You're in need of, of, of or I will say this, you're in need of reconstruction, of reconversion, because, because you've gotten so far off the path of what this thing called faith truly means. That it's not a transaction. It's not, okay, you know what? I, I've decided I want to put my faith in Jesus. I'll get circumcised. I am now born again into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, that's not what this is. That's not what this is at all. The kingdom of heaven is not a, a, a rules-based, arbitrary religion that follows you know, a, a set of laws that exists just to get you from, to, to get you someplace else when you die. Like it's not just a ticket into heaven and a ticket out of hell, but it's actually something that has value here and now. That this thing called faith has something that, of great importance here and now because faith actually makes you a new creation. We're talking about a transition, not a transaction. 
And then Jesus goes on to say, John 3, 16, that, that for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And immediately follows it up. I love John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it through him. He said, Nicodemus, you are the one. Like, he, he, like I, I, I love this moment. I, I can just almost see, like, Nicodemus and, and Jesus, like, looking eye to eye, and, and Jesus just staring into Nicodemus' soul in a way and saying, Nicodemus, you are the one in need of deconstruction. Your, your idea of faith needs to be deconstructed because, because your religious observance has only brought you so far. Your knowledge, your understanding, it's only brought you so far but I want you to come further. I want you to come and follow me. And, and, and one of the things that I, I like so often about the Gospels is, is that when you read them, there, there's often a sense of, of resolve. Like there are healings. People you know, put their faith in Jesus immediately. Uh, people get baptized. They, they give their lives to follow him. There's a, there's a sense of resolve, of resolution. But I think the story of Nicodemus is actually a bit emblematic of, of what we would think of about religiosity in our own, in our own time today. The Nicodemus, he comes and he sees Jesus at night and he asks these questions. He's kind of kicking the tires. He's, he, he's trying to get, gain some understanding about what is, what is this thing that, that you've been talking about, this man of God, that, that you've obviously come from God, but, but I want to know more. And the next time we see Nicodemus and Jesus is actually when Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Jewish ruling council. He's being judged there. And while all the other members of the Sanhedrin, while the, all the other Jewish rulers are ready to con condemn Jesus right off the bat, Nicodemus actually st speaks up. And he says, all right, if we're going to judge this man, we should at least hear him out. We should at least hear what he has to say. And the last time we see Nicodemus is actually after Jesus has been murdered. That he comes to help Joseph of Arimathea to, to prepare the body for burial. He brought spices to, to prepare and to wrap the body up. And, and I would argue that something monumental has shifted in Nicodemus's life. That he went from having the, this transactional mindset of faith to one of transition. He's reoriented his, his faith priorities toward relationship. And, and it's funny to me that, that how, like, there's nothing new under the sun, how cyclical everything is. Because you know, Jesus taught the, these ideas of faith and about the kingdom of God. He taught it for three years with his disciples. He taught the, the Jewish rulers and, and all this. And, and he died, he, he resurrected, he ascended into heaven. And the early church, they, they, kinda, they take a very evangelistic bent where they, they take the good news of Jesus and they start spreading it around the known world. And if you fast forward a bit, Paul writes his letter that we now call Galatians, to a group of believers in the Galatian church, or in, in Galatia. And it's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of, of Paul's writings that, that he writes. And, and in Galatians 5, we see the same exact thing happening again. This very thing that, that Jesus was pushing back on Nicodemus about, Paul ends up having to address the same issue. Now Paul, being the writer of Galatians, he was, he was a Pharisee himself just as Nicodemus was. 
Like he was an expert in the law, and he just had, he had this dramatic conversion ex- experience that he had been born again into a, a life of faith, into life with Christ. And he wasn't given this, this vision of, of power and prestige, but of he was blinded. He was taught the way of submission and long-suffering and obedience. And in Galatians 5.22, this is a familiar passage. Most of us have heard this before. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. And, and what had happened at this time, and one of the things that, that prompted this writing is that th- this group of people called the du- Judaizers, it was kind of this, this tongue-in-cheek uh, reference to, the, to these Jewish believers, that they had come back to this church in Galatia, and they began to kind of sow some dissent in a way of saying, all right, you know, we, all right, what Jesus taught about, you know, uh, th- this new way of faith and what Paul has taught about this new way of faith, but we need to be kind of care- careful here. We, we, need, we need to be a little bit careful. So, so just to be sure, just to be sure, we ought to make sure that we still, you know, put on that, that mark of God, which was circumcision. All right, not only do we put our faith in Christ, but we also need to put on this mark of God, which is circumcision. This was the thing that set God's people apart for millennia. Just as kind of like an insurance policy, in a way, of saying, all right, you know, yeah, faith in Jesus is one thing, but we need to still, we need to still be circumcised. I don't know why I just did that. I'm <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> and, and Paul comes back and he emphatically says, no, no, not at all. It, it, it is not some arbitrary mark that, on our body that guarantees our inclusion into the kingdom of God. He says, you want to know what the, the, mark of, the mark of God is now? It's not circumcision anymore, but it's fruit. The, the mark of God in your life is fruit, fruit that shows that you've been reborn into the kingdom of God. Because when, when you've been born of the Spirit, these fruits, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, these are the things that are going to mark you as one of His. These fruits of the Spirit, they are the new circumcision. It's what marks you as one of God's own. It's not, a, it's not a mark on your body, but it's a mark from your, in your spirit. It's a mark in your heart that comes out. He says, against these things, there is no law. Religion can't hold a candle to these fruits of the Spirit. And I think often in, in our time today, in our society right now, our faith has, like I said before, been, kind of been co-opted with a very negative message. Far too often, followers of Christ are known as, as hypocrites. The, the caricature that is often embodied is one of abuse of power, of judgment, of, of seeking power, wealth, position, culture wars, using the cross for, for personal, for political gains. That's not our faith. And this is where we should welcome deconstruction in order to reconstruct. 
where, where we can leave behind the, the transaction of religion in order to transition into a relationship with, with the living God through his spirit in community with one another. Because if you look back on the early church writings, you know how many times it, it is written and it said, all right, you've accepted Jesus into your heart. You've prayed the sinner's prayer. You're a Christian now. Here's a Bible. Go into your prayer closet and pray and fast and read this and come on out and let us know what you think. Like zero many times. That faith is always walked out in community with others. Always. That, that, was, that was the expectation. Faith, faith, we've, made, we've often made faith a very personal, individualistic thing. And that was a totally foreign concept to the early church fathers. Where they would have said, no, no, no. Faith is lived out in community with other people, walking arm in arm with, with brothers and sisters, people who are further along in their journey with you and people who are brand new in this walk as well. Like we, we are called a spiritual family. The, the writers of the New Testament are adamant that we are the physical manifest, manifestation of God. Like as, as a representative here on earth, we are the body of Christ. And we speak to the world one way or, or another. And, and so like we can buy into that caricature and buy right into the cultural value of power and position and greed and war, or we can adopt what the true, the true view of who Jesus is, one of mutual submission, care for the poor, love for our enemies, in inclusion of our brothers and sisters. Like, like, again, like I said, linked arm in arm in this transition of faith. And walking away from a, from a transaction of religion. And so I want to close with just a, a final thought here this morning. And, and it's this idea of, about when you look at the interaction that Jesus had with Nicodemus. It, it's striking for, for several reasons. First of all, like when, whenever you read, if you look in the four Gospels, whenever you read about an interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, they're always very confrontational. The Pharisees are always trying to attempt to, to trap Jesus into saying something that was going to get him into trouble. And, and virtually every dealing they had, this was their MO. All right, what can we do to kind of trap him? What gotcha question can we ask? What, what can we do to land Jesus in trouble? Because they were convinced that their own version of faith, their own version of God was right, was correct. That they were living it out the way it was supposed to be done. And, and when Jesus attempted to let them know that they were off, that they didn't have all the answers, they would often double down. But Nicodemus was different. Like when you read about Nicodemus's interaction with Jesus, he's not doing so with the goal of trying to trap him or playing some gotcha game. He approaches Jesus with humility, with a, with a desire to learn and to grow and to understand. Not just to have his beliefs that he's already held on to reaffirmed. You say, no, like, Jesus, there's something about you. You've obviously come from God. Help me to know. Help me to understand. Help me to grow. And he was willing to deconstruct all the things that he had been taught. As a Pharisee's Pharisee, one of the ruling council, having the Torah memorized, like, like he, was, he was so enmeshed in being one of the religious and cultural elite 
And he was willing to deconstruct all of that, all that he knew about faith, all that he knew about God in exchange for something real. And that's my prayer for, for, for us as a church family, that we would have that same heart and that same spirit that Nicodemus had, that we would approach Jesus with, with humble and with curious hearts, not wanting to just hold on to our own religious ideas and traditions and things we've always believed, but being willing and being open to hearing what Jesus has to say to us today. being in community with one another, recognizing that faith is not a one-and-done transaction, but it's actually truly like it's a journey of transition. And I'll tell you, like, there's things I believe today that if you asked me a couple years ago, I would have been like, no way. Mm -mm. And there are a lot of things that I've let go of today that I used to believe but I recognize I was holding on to a false God. Holding on to a God of judgment who, who couldn't wait to straighten people out and getting even with his enemies. Like that was a God I was holding on to for a very long time. Holding on to a God who expected performance from me, from others. And, and in the end, like that's what this journey is all about. It's not a transactional, all right, good, done, you're, you're, you're in, you're in the club, you're in the family, good to go. No, no, no. It's a journey of transition. And I, and I would say, if, if God hasn't changed your mind about some things along the way, and it's been a little while, I, I'd say you probably have some pride issues that you need God to work on. Because our journey with God should be one of constantly challenging changing, growing, understanding. That if you believe all the same things now that you did 10 years ago, I want to push back on that. I, I want to push back and say, all right, are you willing to be Nicodemus? Are you willing to go to Jesus and say, all right, I want the real thing. I don't want this idea that, I, that I've understood forever, this thing that I've memorized, this transactional relationship. No, I want something real. There's something about you that is drawing me, and I want to know. I want to understand. I want to grow. Like Nicodemus was willing to be wrong. Man, that's a rare thing today, isn't it? He was willing to be wrong. He was, he was willing to put himself on a limb and say, Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I want to grow. I want to grow. I want to know you more. And he went from being a skeptic to being an advocate and then being a participant in the work that Jesus was doing on this earth. He, he went from being a skeptic to an advocate. He advocated for Jesus when he was in front of the Sanhedrin to being a participant in what Jesus was doing here on this earth. And I tell you, man, let that same thing be said of us. So would you bow your heads? Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we, we love you so very much. God, we thank you for the way that you, that you are gentle, that you care for us, Lord, that, that you recognize our, our faults and our frailties and, and the questions that we have. And, and God, in the same way that, that Nicodemus came to you with, with a genuine heart of, of desiring to grow and understand and a you know, willingness to be wrong, Lord, I pray that same thing for us, Lord, that we would not become so convinced of our own rightness, 
that we close ourselves off, that our hearts become hardened to you and what it is that you're wanting to do in and through us, Lord. God, that we would have that, that genuine heart of, of humility, of, of desiring to grow and understand. And Lord, if that means that we have to take apart and deconstruct all those thoughts, those things that we've grown up with and known along the way because we want to, to tear it all down and reconstruct something that's true and real, something that's actually you, that, that we're not having this, this picture of a false God and a false faith in our lives, Lord, but God, we want to see that true picture of you and who you are and, and what that looks like lived out in our lives. So, Lord, for, for us as a church, for us as a, a family, a community of faith, Lord, God, let us walk this journey together, that, that we, would, we would reject this notion that, that it's just this transactional thing between God and us, but that this is a transition, a journey of transition that we're on together as we become more and more like you, more and more like your likeness. God, strip away, cut away all those things in our life, Lord those things that we've held on to, those false gods that we have a strong grip on, Lord, we just ask that you would pry our fingers apart and ask for you to do an amazing transitional work in our lives, Lord. Even if we've been walking in this thing called faith for decades, Lord, that you still have things you want to show us, areas you want us to grow. God, illuminate that for us, Lord, and help us to have the hearts to do it. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.